good to be with you all again and have an opportunity to share God's Word with you. Today we're looking at uh, Genesis chapter 9, and we're going to read through the entire chapter um, during our sermon, but for now I just want to preface what we're going to talk about with one verse from Genesis chapter 6, verse 8. We read there, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for another opportunity to come together and worship your holy name as we come to this time of instruction. We pray that you would instruct us and that we would hear your word clearly spoken to us, to our hearts, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Help me to get out of the way so you can do that today, O Lord. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, what happens after Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden? Well, the human race essentially goes to seed. It goes down further and further into idolatry and wickedness. Uh, Cain kills his brother. Lamech becomes a polygamist. Angels continue to take advantage of women, and men just get worse and worse serving themselves and refusing to serve God. The human race runs further and further away from God and becomes more and more wicked day by day until God just says, all right, that's it. I'm going to destroy the whole thing. In uh, Genesis 6, it gets so bad that God says he's sorry that he even created the human race. Uh, and in, uh, oh, I'm sorry, this, in, in 6, we're told that the intentions and the thoughts of men's hearts are only uh, evil continually. Uh, so it seems that men only focus on what is evil now. It seems that the uh, ability to discern between good and evil has done them no good because men are sinful since the fall. And when sinful man is left to himself without the restraining hand of God's grace in his life, he just becomes evil. Um, To use a C.S. Lewis analogy, we become orgs. That is, we become beast-like. Uh, men are at one another's throats during this time. Uh, no one can be trusted. You can't even trust your own family members. It's Hunger Games 2.0. Kill or be killed. And so God says, I'm going to blot the whole thing out and I'm going to start over. And God drowns the old world in a flood. Now, during this time, there are samplings of righteous men. You have men like Enoch who walked with God and men like Seth and Noah who call upon the name of the Lord and, and who worship him. And God in his grace decides to save Noah and his family. He determines that he is going to start the human race over with one man and his household. So God destroys the old world and he preserves Noah and his family in an ark. Today we are looking at a faith a covenant, and a rebellion. Uh, We're going to be looking at the story of what happens between Noah and his sons after the flood, and we are are continuing the story of looking at our ancestry, that is our family history in the church from the beginning 
of the pages of Scripture till the end. And we're looking at everything that the Bible has to say about us, where we came from, who we are, where we're going, and what our purpose is in the world. And today in our passage, we see that in three most fundamental ways. First of all, we see that we are to be a people of faith. That is, we are to have the faith of Noah, which is a patient, obedient faithfulness to God and his plan. Second, uh, we see that we are to be a people uh, of covenant. That is, we are a people with whom God makes covenant, and we are a people with whom God keeps covenant. And last of all, we see that um, authority is God-given. There's a rebellion that we see in the end of our passage. And we see that authority is God-given, is bestowed by God, and that we're not to seize it before the time. So, a faith, a covenant, and a rebellion. We see that first point, that we're to be a people of faith in verses 1 through 7 of Genesis chapter 9. Reading from verse 1, these are the words of God. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the flesh, excuse me, all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your life blood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So the first thing that I want to point out here in this passage is that God has not given up on this original mandate that he, give, that he gave to Adam and Eve back in the garden, which I will refer to as the dominion mandate from here on out. Did you notice that in our passage, God reiterates the same things that he said to Adam and Eve to Noah and his sons. He tells them to be fruitful, to multiply, to take uh, dominion over the earth. So the work that God gave Adam and Eve to do continues with Noah and his sons. Uh, The old world that was filled with wickedness and corruption has now been washed away, and God now essentially creates a new world for Noah to rule over with his descendants, but sin still remains. And so there is provision made for sin. I don't know if you picked up on it, but there's a subtle change in the mandate here, God tells them now that they can eat flesh. Whereas before the flood and before the fall, men were vegetarians. They only ate plants. But here, they are given the right to eat animals, uh, but they are not to eat blood. Now, why does God refuse to allow man to eat the blood animals. Well, there's two reasons, I think. First of all, God is being merciful. He's saying, don't just grab a hold of the animals and dig in. (laughs) you got to kill them first, right? When you shed blood in the Scripture, you're killing. Uh, That's essentially the connection that is made. 
Uh, But I think more importantly is that blood is going to be used in the sacrificial system to approach God. And so people are to realize that blood is a precious thing. Blood has life in it. We realized this, I think it was in World War II, we tried to replace our soldiers' blood with plasma. It didn't work (laughs) because life is in the blood. God has set up the world in this way, and so we must live accordingly. Um, So blood is to be treated as a precious thing. Uh, and they were not to eat it. Uh, blood is eaten and drunk by pagans, uh, but the people of God are not to be this way. They are to contemplate the value of human life. It's not something to be trifled with, which leads to the next addition to the mandate, which is anybody who takes the life of another man will now have their life taken by men. God is relinquishing this right to exercise capital punishment now to men after the flood. He gives this right to to Noah and to his descendants. Again, uh, human life is very precious in the sight of God. Human beings are created in the image of God with inherent value, dignity, and worth. And therefore, anybody who maliciously or carelessly takes the life of another person is to have their life taken. Simple as that. But the thing that I want you to pay attention to is that God has now given this right to men. He relinquishes it to a man and to his family. That is to say, God has now invested man with authority in the new world. He has clothed Noah and his descendants with the power and the authority to judge men. And if you remember what we talked about last week, Adam and Eve were babies when they were created. They did, not write, uh, they did not yet have this right or this ability because they were immature and they were to grow and they were to mature and then they would one day attain this ability to judge. But Noah is around 600 years old at this time. <laughs> 600 years old. So he's been living long in the world and wrestling with sin and with Satan and with the world. And so Noah knows a couple things. Noah uh, has become mature. Noah has been obedient, and he has been faithful to God. As a matter of fact, 120 of those years were spent by Noah building this ark in which him and his family are saved. So 120 years, Noah builds this ark, and while he's doing that, he's calling out to the men of his generation, the wicked men, to repent lest they perish in the coming judgment. Uh, And if you think about that for a moment, Noah spends 120 years building this huge boat, this enormous thing, and there's no water around. So people were probably coming to him regularly and mocking him, saying, Noah, what are you doing? Are you crazy? What do you think is going to happen? And he's warning them. Uh, Noah continued, regardless of the slander and the mockery that he received, to be faithful to God, to trust in his word, and believe that God would do what he said he was going to do. And when the day came and the waters gushed forth and it rained for 40 days and 40 nights on the earth, those wicked men who refused to listen to him were drowned. And now Noah steps off the boat onto dry ground, and God places in his hand the ability to judge He robes him with authority over the new world. Noah patiently, faithfully obeyed God. He 
trusted in the word of the Lord, even when it seemed crazy to do so. And as a result, God saved him and his family, and the rest of the world perished. Friends, Noah is held up in Scripture to us as a pattern and an example for us to be followed after. The writer of the book of of Hebrews tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Quote, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, what he did in reverent fear constructing an ark for the saving of his household, by this, He condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. What kind of faith is this, friends? Let's let's just first say what it isn't. Uh, It's not just merely an intellectual assent to the promises of God. It's not not just saying in in your mind... uh, you know, that God, that Jesus is Lord and, you know, that I believe His promises, that is not faith according to the Scriptures. If you, if you go back and read this chapter in Hebrews, chapter 11, which is sometimes referred to, the, uh, referred to as the hall of faith, you see there what men did by faith. So-and-so did this by faith, and so-and-so did that by faith. By faith, Noah believed in a flood that he could not see. He believed what God said about the coming judgment to be true, and he acted on it. The Scripture says, in reverent fear, he constructed an ark for the saving of his household. The kind of faith, friends, that Noah has is a a living, breathing, active, obedient faith. It is the kind of faith that responds to the Word of God when it hears it. It's the kind of faith that obeys the Word of God when it hears it. It's the kind of faith that lives in accordance with the Word of God and believes what God said He is going to do and acts accordingly. This is to say that it is no dead faith. Sometimes people sit there in church pews all their life and they claim that they have faith, but that's all it ever really is, is a church pew faith. The kind of faith that God commends to us here is an obedient faith. Our faith requires something of us. Listen to what it says in Hebrews. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. So how do, how do we know if we believe this? How do we know if we believe that God rewards those who seek Him? Well, we act like it. We act like it. We take advantage of opportunities that God gives us to serve in the church, believing that God will bless our efforts and that He will cause them to multiply, that He will deliver on his promises. We believe everything that God says about everything and we live our lives in light of it. And in so doing, we too condemn the world 
and become heirs of righteousness. So we mustn't just merely hear the promises of God and assent to them, but we must believe them, and we believe them by acting according to them. This is the kind of faith that Noah had, and it is the kind of faith that God commends to us in the Scriptures as Christians. So we must be a people of faith. Next, we read of the covenant. So there's a faith and there's a covenant in verses 8 through 17. Verse 8 we read, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Well, God says He's going to establish His covenant here with Noah. He is essentially saying that I'm going to keep it going with you. Uh, you're the one whom I am going to follow through on these promises. Um, you're the one with whom I'm going to follow through on these promises that I've made. God abandoned the rest of the human race in the flood except for Noah and his family, and now he's going to start over with them. He's going to keep that original promise that he made to Eve back in the garden that said, your seed will one day crush the head of the serpent, and he's going to keep that promise through Noah and his descendants. And God ensures that that will happen by ensuring, uh, God ensures that that will happen by promising to preserve the world. At the end of chapter 8, God promises to keep the world in order season after season and year after year until he's finished with his program. And that is to say that God is going to preserve the world until Jesus Christ is done with his work in the world. Jesus Christ is at work to redeem all things to himself, and God will preserve the world until Jesus finally puts this hostility between the people of God and their enemies to bed once and for all. And the sign that God uses to confirm this covenant to us year after year is a rainbow. Now, the wicked men and women of our day have turned this sign into something that it is not. The rainbow does not represent gay pride or LGBTQ, RSV, WXYZ, I'm not sure what letter they're on now, or anything like this. It represents the promise that God made to his people here. It's a symbol, it's a sign to his people that he's going to keep covenant with them. 
Um, in Scripture, the word actually refers to a war bow. It's a bow, like a bow and arrow in the sky. And if you think of the bow, if there was an arrow on it, it would be facing up into heaven. So God is essentially saying that I will destroy myself if I don't keep this covenant. Um, or it could be the fact that God has hung up his bow. This is God's bow. You know, when you hang a bow up, that's the way it would look if you've seen it hanging there in the sky. So God's bow is hanging there. Either way, it tells us that God is now at peace with us. Um, that he's no longer going to destroy the world through water. It's interesting to note that if you look uh, through the passages of Scripture that show us the throne of God, there's this rainbow around the throne of God in the Scripture. So every time God is looking down at the earth, he has to look through this rainbow. And guess what happens? He's reminded of the covenant promise that he made not to destroy us. He looks through and he sees the rainbow. Ultimately, the we can say that the rainbow is a type of the cross of Christ, right? Because in the same way uh, that God has not destroyed the world yet with a flood again because of that rainbow, in like manner, he does not destroy the world even now still because of the cross of Christ. Um, by God's, uh, By the blood of God's Son, his judgment has been restrained. Uh, and as long as Christ is at, the wor- uh, at work in the world, working to redeem all things to himself, that cross is to be a sign to us of God's mercy, of God's restraining grace. Wherever we see it on church steeples or around people's necks or wherever it may be, that's what it represents to us. It represents the mercy of God. He's holding back his judgment so that he might call all of his people to himself. Now, we should say something about this word remember that God uses here. He says that when he sees the rainbow, he's going to remember his covenant. And this word remember uh, essentially refers to a memorial. Uh, God, and when we memorialize something, we are thinking deeply about it and all of the implications that go along with it. And this is what God does when he sees the rainbow. He thinks about covenant that he made with Noah and everything that goes along with it, and he acts. In Scripture, when God is reminded of something, he acts. And in this instance, it is a non-action, which is an action. God decides not to destroy the world every time he sees that rainbow. And so this is a memorial, and it's the first of many memorials that we'll see as we go throughout Scripture, and the ultimate one we see found in uh, the Lord's Supper, where he says that we're to do this in remembrance of him as a memorial to him. But more on that to come. So finally, in verses 18 through 28, we see a rebellion. Verses 18 through 28, we read, The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth 
took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Excuse me, their, fa- uh, their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. So here we have another Garden of Eden scene. Noah plants a vineyard in which one of his children rebels against him, and as a result, they are judged and cast out. So first, Noah plants a vineyard. There's been a lot of speculation over the years about Noah's behavior here, whether it was objectionable or not. But Noah is doing here what God has told him to do, which is to cultivate the earth. Remember, we said that wine is glorified grapes. So Noah is transforming the earth, and he's cultivating it, and he's making it into something more glorious. And at the end of the day, he drinks of his wine, and he gets drunk. That is, he gets comfortable and at ease and relaxed, and he goes to sleep. The Bible never condemns what Noah does here. The Bible condemns drunkenness. The Bible condemns a drunkard, which is a, it's a way of life. It's a characteristic of a person. It's something that they practice regularly. But here, Noah, at the end of his day, he enjoys the fruit of his labors after uh, he has um, drank, he gets drunk, he took off his clothes, and he went to sleep. After he has experienced some shalom, that is, some peaceful rest with his wine, feeling fulfilled and justified after a hard day's work, he lays down and he goes to sleep. Then we see the sin. The sin of Ham is is what's condemned here. So first, Noah plants a garden. Second, we have the rebellion of a son. And people have speculated for years here about what Ham does. Uh, does the, the question is, does he violate his, does he sexually violate his father here in this instance? What does Noah, or excuse me, what does Ham actually do? Uh, is it a sin to see your father naked? Is that why he's so harshly condemned in this instance? Well, I don't think so. The Bible doesn't say anything of the sort. Um, now, if he, it, when, you, when he looks, the question is, what does he do? <laughs> does he look with impure or improper motives on his father in his nakedness? Remember what we learned about nakedness and clothing last week. Uh, clothing's a sign of authority. So Noah lays aside his robes of authority, and he lays down, and his son sees it. And what does Ham try to do here? He tries to get his brothers to rebel with him against the authority of his father, to seize the authority that his father would bestow on them before time. He's like, come on, guys. We can, we can, the old man's sleeping. We can go grab his robe right now, run off and do whatever we want. We don't have to listen to the old man and his rules anymore. 
we can go do it all on our own. And the brothers, being faithful and obedient sons, are like, no way, man. (laughs) We're not going to do that. And they won't even look at their father in their nakedness, first because it's shameful to do so after the fall, and also, I think, they don't want to be tempted in the way that Ham was. And so in a symbolic act, they put the robe on their shoulders and they walk backwards and they place the robe back on their father where it belongs. They place the authority back there where it belongs. Ham is following in the way of Adam here. He's seeking to usurp the authority of his father. Remember, Adam did this in the garden when he ate from the tree. And we also see here the temptation of Satan in that Ham tries to get his two brothers to go along with him in this. It's the Garden of Eden all over. So Ham's sin is rebellion against authority, and we know this because of the judgment that Noah pronounces on him afterwards. He says, essentially says his, he's going to be a slave to his brothers. His son is going to serve uh, Shem and Japheth, and he's going to become their slave. So the very thing that he sought is the thing that he lost. And just as Adam and Eve seek to usurp authority in the garden, and it is taken from them and given from angels, here, Ham tries to usurp the authority of his father. Noah takes it from him and gives it to his brothers. So what does this all mean? So what? (laughs) Right? That's the question. So what? What does this all mean for us today? Um... Listen, God has called us to rule and to have dominion. And patient, obedient, faithful submission to authority is the only way to exercise true authority in the world. Let me explain. God is determined to give dominion in the world to man, and the way that we obtain that dominion is by patiently, obediently, and faithfully serving God as He has called us to. When we run into authority in the world, the rulers and authorities that God has set up in the world, we are to submit to them because God has set them up. And we are to obey them unless they tell us to uh, disobey God and then they are not a true authority at all. True authority, real authority, is God bestowed and it is God honoring. Now, what are some of the spheres of authority that we see out there in the world today still? Well, there's four, um, four main ones. That would be uh, self-government, family government, civil government, and church government, right? So those are the spheres of authority that God has set up. Self, family, civil, and church. First of all, self-government, it has to do with individuals. It has to do with the control that we have over ourselves. Gary DeMar says that uh, self-government is synonymous with self-control. And throughout the Scriptures, uh, men who do not have control over themselves come to ruin. It is is an undoing of yourself to be without control. Um, you can't run around being a hothead all the time, popping off at every little thing that gets under your skin. 
you have to be under control. You have to be subdued. Um, and, the, and that's the only way you'll ever take dominion. The only way that you can ever gain control over the situation when you're angry is to be cool and collective and to step back and to plan how you can overthrow that sin or injustice or whatever it is that you see. And believe me, I'm preaching to myself up here today. All of these things, I don't do them well. I fail in many of these uh, ways, but um, this is what God has called us to do. And so we've got to grow in it. I'm working on it. I hope you are too. Um, We must be self-controlled. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that you can't be angry. Sometimes you need to be angry and you need to be really really angry with sin and injustice that you see out there in the world, but you've got to be level-headed. You've got to be a man who's, or a woman who's under control and disciplined if you want to gain authority. You have to submit yourself to authority, and uh, that brings me to the next part of this, is that we're not autonomous, okay? When I say self-control, that doesn't mean we do whatever we want and we make up our own standards and way of living. We talked about this last week. God gives us a standard by which we are to live our lives. There's, there's a, a, a moral standard that God has called us to live up to, and we are to obey it. He shows us what is good and right and what is just in his word, and we are to bring ourselves under submission to it, whatever that may be. God's word speaks to every single area of our lives, and we have to find out what it says about it and bring ourselves into subjection to it, that is how we become more disciplined and more self-trolled. <clears throat> That's how we govern ourselves. So first, self-government. <clears throat> Next, family government. God has invested the mother and the father in the home with power and authority. They are the ones that God has set up to rule in the home, and the parents are to rec- uh, to. Uh, exercise godly uh, discipline and correction um, in their home. Their children are to submit themselves to that discipline and that correction, and they're to listen to the things that their parents have told them because this is the authority that God has set up over them in the home. And it's not just you kids, although it is, but it's me too. I have a mom, and I have to submit to her, and I have to listen to her, and Sometimes I don't. I don't do it well, but God has called us to do it. And if we are to rebel against that authority that God has set over us in our parents, we are entering into the sin of Ham that we've just read about here in the Scripture, and that is rebelling against our parents, rebelling against the authority that God has set up over us in our mother and father. And since God set it up, it's God's authority, and if we're rebelling against our parents, guess what? We're rebelling against God because it's the authority that he's placed over us in our home. So, as long as our parents rule over us in a godly way, you are subject to obey them. And then, of course, we talked about this earlier, that when you get married, you come out from under that. So, for us uh, who have been married, uh, it's not exactly the same, but we still have obligations to our family members and to our parents. Um, So, family government. Self-government, family government, and then next there is civil government, of course. The government, that's the one that we think of right away, isn't it? The governmental authority structures that are out there in the world. And we are to submit ourselves to them. 
the Bible says that they're God-ordained, that God has appointed these leaders and put them into their place, and that they are to, um, to punish evil and reward good. That's the job of the civil magistrate. And it says that uh, in Romans 13 that they don't bear the sword in vain. So if you're a wicked person, you better run. And if you're good, then you don't have anything to worry about. Um, but we are to submit to our leaders, to the governing authorities that God has placed over us. Unless uh, they tell us to disobey God. Well, then, again, they are not a real authority at all. They are no government at all. They have become a beast at that point. When a, when a government sets itself up against the church of God and begins to persecute it and rewards evil and punishes good, it is no government at all. <clears throat> but... If government keeps its proper place, the church will advance, and so will God's program in the world. God sets the government up to protect the church so the kingdom of Christ can advance, so his program can advance in the world. If we submit to that authority, God gives us authority in the world. That's how it progresses. Does that make sense? So it's all through authority structure that God has done this. Finally, there's church government. And that is the government that God has ordained to rule over his church. Uh, God has um, appointed um, a government in his church as the means to rule over it. And the officers that have been appointed in our church to rule over us are to rule not autonomously, but again, according to the word of God. And if our officers begin to make decisions that are contrary to the will of God, if they are unjust, if they are unbiblical, then they are... they. At that point, they're seeking to usurp the authority of God and they're to be stripped of power because they are under authority as well. But if they're making just and right and good decisions for us, then we are to submit to them because that is the authority structure that God has set up over us here in the church. That's how God rules over us, through the officers that he has appointed. And again, when the church is properly ruled and governed, it will be used to advance God's kingdom in the world. So everywhere we look, we still see these spheres, we still see these authority structures, we still have this idea of submitting to authority in the world in order to gain authority, in order to overcome. So there's self-government, family government, civil government, and church government. In the end... Ham was cast out of Noah's vineyard just as Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden. He does not exercise dominion in the world because he does not submit to the God-given authority that was placed over him. And the only way that God will give us authority and advance his cause in the world through us is if we submit to the authorities that he has placed over us. Brothers and sisters, let us not enter into the sin of Ham. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together and to hear from you, to hear your words spoken. We pray that these truths uh, are of you. Uh, anything that I've said that is unbiblical, let it fall away. Lord, but what is true, let it remain in our hearts and let us stick to it and let us abide by it.
He's called us to, to exercise dominion, to have authority, but we must first become mature. Let us mature in these principles. Let us learn them. Let us walk in them. Let us submit to authority structures that you have placed in the world. That as we do, your kingdom might advance as you give us greater and greater authority here in this world. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.